Good afternoon, and welcome to the Netflix Q2 2020 Earnings Interview. I'm Spencer Wong, VP of IR and Corporate Development. Joining me today are co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, COO Greg Peters, and CFO Spence Newman. Our interviewer this quarter is Kanan Venkateshwar from Barclays Capital. As a reminder, we'll be making forward-looking statements and actual results may vary. Now, let me turn it over to Kanan for his first question. Thank you, Spencer, and you nailed my last name, so congratulations for that. I practiced. <laughs> so, thanks for having me here, and um, I guess the best place to start here is Ted and Greg, congratulations on your new role, um, and Reed, you too, I guess you can relax a little bit more. Um, so, maybe we could just start off with uh, your priorities, Ted, and uh, maybe followed by Greg, just in terms of... Uh, you know, how you see the world evolving, uh, what your priorities are, and of course, we are in the middle of a lot of change. So how you see the world. So maybe you could just start there. Well, we, we should start by saying that the chances that Reed's going to relax a little more are very low. Uh, I'm just, everyone should know that Reed and I have worked together for more than 20 years. Uh, he's been an unbelievable role model and source of inspiration for me. Um, we've navigated some of the toughest decisions the company has made over those years from mailing DVDs around the U.S. to streaming around the world. And my focus is to continue the successful train we've been on uh, for the next 200 million subs around the world. And, Greg, I'm thrilled to throw it over to you. Thank you, Ted. Uh, you know, from my perspective, when I think about what our future is, and I think it's just a tremendous uh, next stage of growth that we will see mostly coming from outside the United States. So think of more and more employees outside the United States, more productions, more operations happening outside the U.S., and hopefully many, many more members uh, outside the U.S. You know, this is an opportunity to, you know, lean in just a little bit more, be proactive, um, and drive a little bit more alignment um, across those activities where we think, you know, alignment will benefit the business and, you know, push the optimization of those activities a little bit more. And, uh, Kanan, you, you might not know, but uh, many years ago now, it feels, I was uh, able to spend a couple of years in Japan launching the service there, and I got a chance to work with, you know, the local teams that we were hiring and growing there, as well as our global teams, to really look at every aspect of the service and try and improve it for our Japanese members and grow our membership base there. So I, I think of that as sort of like a mini version uh, or like a trial or a test out for what I anticipate I'll be doing more in this role. And just as a small little uh, fun fact for our listeners and uh, shareholders who may not know, but Greg actually speaks five uh, languages. So I think as we become a more global service, that uh, that skill set will really uh, benefit the company. Notice when you say how well it's Java, C++. <laughs> 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 we make two languages. <laughs> how do you find time, Greg, to do all that? It's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, we are so excited about the next decade of Netflix growth. We've definitely got a good start, uh, but the opportunity uh, across the next decade is just amazing for us. Uh, it's a lot international, as, as Greg was referring. Uh, but I couldn't be more excited about it, and it will be great uh, to have some help, uh, you know, as we expand the globe, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. And to be totally clear, I'm, I'm in for a decade, um, so let me be really clear on that. I'm in for a decade, okay? Uh, and uh, as co-CEO, it's two of us full-time. It's not like a part-time deal. Um, so it's definitely broadening the management team and helping us grow even faster over the next 10 years. Great. And so maybe, you know, read from your perspective, uh, now that you have an, uh, a relatively new setup, is there any kind of, um, 
growth plans, maybe that's out of the ordinary that you might be thinking about. I mean, is Netflix in the next 10 years the same that compared to the Netflix in the last 10 years? So if you could just help us think through what your priorities are uh, potentially now that you're sharing a job with them. You know, the three of us have been working together so long, there's essentially no difference next quarter. I mean, Ted's got some increased external stature, and he could put bigger deals together for us, and that's really cool. Uh, and Greg, you know, will start to spend more time around the world for us. Uh, but think of it as much more uh, consistent, you know, with uh, the past than different. And then the beautiful thing about the next 10 years is we've got a good model. We just need to make it better. Every day we work on making our service better, trying to make it so, you know, the billboard on the front of the UI, you can just click it and watch it and just, like, trust that result. Uh, and then, of course, having amazing breadth of content, which we've been expanding. You know, a couple of years ago, we only had uh, premium TV. And now to be really good in movies, to be really good in unscripted, converging in animation, very strong in uh, local language uh, shows and series. I mean, it's just, it's incredible the expansion that Ted's pulled off over the last five years. So think of it as just us doing more of that, you know, at higher scale than pleasing more people. So uh, no change in the focus or the execution preparing for greater scale. I, I, can I tell you, you, we have to make the shows and the films uh, that people love and the stars that they want to spend more time with and being able to launch those brands, whatever your taste is all around the world, is such a monumental job. And I'm just thrilled that we have such a strong team to do it together. That's great. Maybe we could just, uh, you know, um, start with um, uh, the environment we are in the middle of right now. Um, things seem to be open, uh, seems to be opening up, but now it looks like things might go back again a little bit. So when you think about the environment around you, uh, a lot around us has changed. The way we work, um, you know, the work flows around different organizations. So when you think about um, your plans for Netflix going forward, how has COVID impacted your plans? Uh, in, in what instances are these plan changes permanent? And can you actually benefit um, either from a cost perspective or a workflow perspective in some way that might be here to stay uh, for much longer? You want to start, Spence? Uh, sure. I mean, generally, Kanan, it, it doesn't change too much. I mean, what we've learned is that the Internet is, you know, Reed said even last quarter, we know that's a more important part of our lives, and that's kind of here to stay, and also that people love film and television shows. So that um, our strategy is just to get better and better every day with that content, with that product, as we talked about Um you know, you can see in the business, and we can talk about it here at some point. Obviously, we've seen some pull forward in, in our member growth, if you will. But, but our strategy hasn't fundamentally changed. There's things on the margin um, in terms of things around real estate strategy and, um, you, know, uh, you know, how much content we, we acquire or commission in certain parts of the world. But fundamentally, our strategy uh, remains the same, and, and the growth opportunity is as big as ever. I could uh, jump in on the production side. I mean, it's been been remarkable how nimble the teams have been uh, for, to going from full-blown production to completely shut down to ramping back up all over the world in the space of a few months. Um, I think some of the things like the safety protocols that we're putting into place around the world uh, will become a permanent part of production, uh, which is a good thing. I think this time uh, in between 
the shutdown and ramping back up, the extra time that was spent on scripts and development and preparedness will make the, the shoots actually more efficient, which I think will stick around. Uh, I think when it comes time to releasing the programming and the content to the world and working with the press on how we do that, we've done this remarkable virtual press junkets with our publicity teams uh, that have put talent in front of the best writers in the world um, almost uninterrupted uh, just from their living room instead of a hotel room. Um, and it's been uh, the, the pickup and the efficiency of that has been some, some parts of that I think will probably last a long time. Uh, our, the, the different marketing functions, how you backfill not being able to host a screening. Um, all of those things are uh, are being learned, and I think some of those things are going to be appropriate for certain content from today on. Um, and I think we'll just be better and smarter um, the way that we've come out of um, many tragic things in our history. And just to pile on to that, I think it's, you know, it's been an opportunity to accelerate things that we were already excited about. You know, like one, I think, great example is um, you know, creating a sort of technical infrastructure that allows distributed, uh, you know, content creators, artists, think about visual effects artists, you know, animating artists, um, to be effective when they're at home, you know, and, and you know, uh, you know, collaborate collectively on assets. We think that was, you know, in the plans before this all happened, but, you know, it's uh, the opportunity to accelerate that um, and make sure that we're, you know, incrementally more effective during this period has been great, and we'll learn a bunch from it that I think will serve us quite well um, as we go back to a more normal working pattern. Yeah. That's great. And when you look at the first half in terms of the subscriber numbers, obviously you guys did close to the numbers that uh, all of 2019 did. Um, and so when you think about your guidance in that context, it does seem to embed an expectation of a lot of pull forward of growth. But over this period, we've also seen cord cutting reach record levels, and that doesn't seem to be slowing down. And some parts of the world, again, seem to be shutting down uh, right now. So if you could just help us think through the framework for growth uh, for the next quarter and the guidance, that would be great. Sure. Let me take that one. Let me take it. So, yeah, can I really nail that? I mean, uh, when we think about the guidance for Q3, we're not thinking about Q3 just in and of itself. We have to look at it in the context of what just happened in Q2, and we just added 10 million members, which is the largest growth we've ever had in the second quarter. And um, and if you look at the, so we kind of look at the totality across the Q2 and Q3 period. And and if we look at that 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 um you know that quarterly period, you know two quarters in a row, the best we've ever done in that period is actually two years ago in 2018, where we grew by 11 and a half million members. So. If we this year deliver on that Q3 guidance, that means we're growing 12 and a half million members in that same time period, which is a million more than we've ever done, which is we did big growth on top of what was already a very big Q1. So the nice thing is that those those newer members are actually highly engaged. They're sticking around with us actually as well or better than than pre-COVID, and our service keeps getting better. So Netflix 2021 is going to be a much better service than Netflix 2020. Um, which gives those those newer members and existing members even more reason to stay highly engaged and stick around and also to entice um, future members to join. So we think that the growth opportunity is as big as ever. There's just that kind of near-term pull forward that you're seeing. And when you think about, um, you know, other components of guidance, um, obviously what stands out is the margin and uh, marketing spend as a proportion of revenues is uh, 7%, which is obviously extraordinarily low. So when you think about, and also the guidance with respect to content being more back-ended next year versus this year, 
that would suggest that as you go into the second half of this year and first half of next year, your marketing spend should continue to be um, lower than usual. So first of all, is that is that the right way to read it? Um, and uh, structurally, does this also mean that the amount you need to spend on marketing as a result of the kind of engagement growth is lower going forward? Well, one of the things that's unique about our services, our members spend a lot of time on Netflix every day. So it turns out the best place to talk to them about Netflix is on Netflix. And our investment in time, energy, and dollars uh, goes into kind of building the, the conversation, the zeitgeist, the buzz around our shows and our stars, and how do we um, uh, make sure we get, amplify that even when you're out on Netflix. But in terms of uh, the march to- towards less traditional media, we've been on that for some time, uh, meaning that it's just a more efficient, more impactful, and more global way to talk to our members is not through always through the most traditional channels. So, yes, you are, you're spending less but doing more uh, to, tra- to attract buzz and attention to our shows, you know, trying to cut through a world where there's a lot of choices. Yeah, and maybe the only thing I just add is a little bit of what Ted touched on earlier, which is, we, we assume marketing in general would be about flat this year, which is still about $2 billion of spend, which is a tremendous amount of spend across our marketing channels. But uh, it does look like it will be lower because of some of those things we're seeing in this in this kind of new world in terms of more virtual junkets and PR and actually not doing as much awards marketing and those sorts of things. Now, some of that is temporary in nature. Um, some of that is, you know, permanent learnings as to how we can be more effective going forward. But... I think you're right that as a result, it's, um, most of this is just consistent with our strategic shift, and some of it is some near-term, um, I guess, cost benefit from what's happening in the world. Okay. And so when you think about currently seeing Kanan, that, um, you know, the service has just been able to generate uh, amazing viewing. And so as the service gets better and better, uh, we're able to take advantage of that. Right. And when you think about your, you know, margin guidance for next year in that context, you have been improving margins about 300 basis points every year. That looks like there is incremental opportunity now. But the guidance for next year is consistent more or less with the broader framework. So is that just conservativeness or is there something else guiding that as we go into next year? It's called tamping down the expectations. Like this is a great uh, growth opportunity for us. Um, so any revenue upside, we would tend to put into more content uh, for our members, uh, which generates more growth over time. So, uh, you know, we, we've been pretty good about that, which is taking that upside and then converting it into more and more growth through service quality. So that would be the plan. Okay. And I would just say that, you know, we, um, to, to Reed's point, we're always looking to uh, spend strategically and invest strategically in the service, but we did signal that in the very near term, there may be some margin upside uh, this year in 2020, but we're really kind of trying to, to manage to that multi-year continuing to increase our margins, which is why we wanted to let folks know that we're at this point managing still to a another 300 basis points increase next year, which would get us to that 19% margin. And worth reiterating, in an environment where Netflix 2021 is better than Netflix 20. Yeah. That's great. Um, and so just to follow up on that comment, when you say it's better in 21 versus 20, um, are we talking about uh, subscribers? Are we talking about uh, the amount of content? So how should we frame that? I'm talking about the, um, the forward trajectory of the, of the releasing of the concept that's coming, out, coming your way. 
I mean, think about it right now at a time where most of the world is at a standstill. Uh, the rest of this month, you're going to see from, from Netflix uh, a brand new series uh, starring Catherine Langford from 13 Reasons Why called Curse, a big, large-scale movie that kind of reimagines the King Arthur legend. Uh, we have a sequel to one of our biggest movies, Kissing Booth 2, the, the original that kind of birthed the rom-com movement on Netflix uh, with uh, uh, Joey King and Jacob Bellardi. Uh, we have a new season of Umbrella Academy, one of our most global and most successful series on Netflix that was a big hit for us when it came out in its first season in 19, uh, and go rolling right into a, a big, high-octane action thriller uh, named Project Power with Jamie, with Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Lovett. So it's that kind of ongoing beat of content and programming. Think about this. That last year, we, were, we, had, we had barely dabbled in competition and reality programming. This quarter alone, with Flores Lava and um, uh, Too Hot to Handle, we had two of our biggest hits ever uh, in that, in that, not just in that genre, but in, in all of our programming. Uh, Too Hot to Handle as a percentage of watching was as big in Japan as it was in the U.S., which is a wild phenomenon. So that, that to me is all those learnings that keep compounding and keep compounding and expanding across programming genres that make it a great value for consumers. That's great. So I guess um, sticking on that theme for a bit, um, when we think about the content mix, obviously that's changed quite a bit over the last few years um, with reality shows and now animation and so on. So when you think about um, this particular mix, uh, reality shows do seem to be a better return on investment in some ways because, you know, a lot of them have shown up, like Too Hot to Handle is in the top 10 list, worked there for some time. Um, so when you think about this mix, is it fair to think about reality shows or maybe documentary programming as being, um, you know, a slightly better return and therefore the mix shifting slightly more in favor of that? And is this even a framework that you consider, which is, you know, when you invest in something, what the returns are versus the engagement? The, the big motivation to invest in reality and unscripted is not the cost savings of production, but the love that people have for this programming and how important it becomes in people's lives. So if we're trying to be more and more uh, your go-to destination for entertainment, not to, to ignore uh, an area of programming that is, kind of dominates broadcast would be silly of us. So we've been, you know, dabbling in unscripted and reality. Uh, we kind of got very, uh, very accomplished in the documentary space uh, and then have moved that over into to expand that to unscripted and then now the competition space which this is only our it was only our third or fourth show really in the, in the competition space we've dabbled into but the motivation really is consumer love for the programming uh, not the marginal cost savings okay got it and Greg just to uh, you know uh, Think about the world from a distribution perspective. There's a lot going on right now in terms of disputes. Uh, Peacock and HBO are not getting carried on Roku, and uh, of course they're having problems with Amazon as well. And probably when you think about this, I mean, it almost feels like the legacy cable network MVPD disputes of the past, uh, where the aggregators are essentially becoming gatekeepers. Um, how do you see this playing out, and is this a risk in the future uh, for Netflix? Yeah. Um, I, you know, first of all, I think it's just really unfortunate when those negotiations between a device manufacturer and an entertainment service provider get to this point where it really impacts consumers and they can't watch the shows that they're thrilled to watch on the device that they have. Um, we've been lucky, you know, to be working, investing alongside, collaborating with uh, a wide, wide range of device manufacturing partners around the world. 
and really working together um, to create better Netflix experiences on uh, those devices. And that's that's really a very positive model. It's really a you know it's a win-win-win, right? It's great for us. We get to reach more of our members with better experiences. It's great for the device manufacturers because those experiences you know make those devices more valuable, more attractive. And you know, most importantly, and ultimately, it's a win for consumers to sort of the benefactors of those better experiences. So we're going to keep investing in that model. We have whole teams that basically do nothing but work to make that whole process better, to make it easier for our manufacturing partners to, to you know, in, ingest the technology that we produce for those better experiences. To think about how do we leverage you know, the, the qualities and features of the devices that those manufacturers are investing in their side to really show up um, those benefits. And I think, you know, we're hopeful and we expect that that positive model will be able to continue. Okay. And then I guess, you know, the other model for distribution is just your deals with MVPDs as well as wireless companies. And, you know, you have a number of these deals globally. So when you think about, um, you know, mature markets like the U.S. versus uh, the rest of the world, uh, your guidance for next quarter, as well as the broader growth framework, would suggest that, you know, marginally these become a bit more important than the organic growth channels. So how are you thinking about um, these wholesale distribution deals? What kind of role do they have going forward? And what's the objective you're trying to solve for when you get into a deal with these guys? Yep. Um, I think you, you have it right, which is that we think that these will grow in importance, but I think it's also um, important to note that they – remain a relatively small uh, percentage of our total acquisition and really what we call the organic channel. People signing up with us directly is still very much um, the dominant mode. But, you know, we sort of think about, um, you know, the the criteria which we sort of are, are evaluating these partnerships on two, two fronts. You know, obviously we're looking at it um, as, you know, how much uh, growth acceleration, how much membership acceleration do we get by adding a channel like that? But then wanting to understand sort of, you know, what, what what large are the revenue impacts, right? There's some cannibalization. There might be different economics involved. So we want to evaluate that and make sure that we're doing these on a positive uh, revenue basis. And then the other very important lens is we actually sort of look at it from what's the consumer experience? What's the, the member experience? And so, you know, we're looking at it qualitatively, just sort of understanding what that member journey is and working with those partners to make sure that that's, as positive, as friction-free as you possibly can. And then we all obviously back it up with the metrics too, right? So we're looking at, you know, engagement and you know, how frequently people use the service, churn characteristics to really make sure that we're delivering a high-quality experience to our members through those channels. And I would say that, you know, we're very positive on both of those fronts. And so, you know, to your point, we expect to continue to do these deals, to expand these deals with working with multiple partners, both in, um, in, to your point, you know, territories that were sort of, you know, further penetrated in, but it's also a great accelerant to territories that were still in an earlier phases. So we think both are great places to do that kind of uh, partnership. That's great. And then I guess, you know, uh, looking at pricing, which is also slightly um, linked to the distribution uh, discussion to some extent, but when you think about, uh, the pricing algorithm we've come to expect, um, it's been in that mid-single-digit growth range over time uh, for Netflix. But more recently, I think when you strip out the effect of uh, the price increases, it's trending a little bit lower than that uh, because of some of the newer plans. So when you think about the pricing algorithm, um, 
How are you uh, thinking about that going forward? Is, is it still the same mid-single-digit kind of a growth profile that you're thinking about, or has that uh, equation changed? Yeah, I think it's important to start with um, just reiterating what we mentioned last time, that really for, for the last several months, we've been principally focused on just making sure that the service has been there for our members when they, you know, turn to us for a moment of escape um, and entertainment. And so uh, we're, you know, very much enthusiastic about being able to, to serve in that role. You know, um, and, and actually we've invested in making the service more valuable through that period of time, adding more content, adding more service features um, to that period as well. But, you know, when we look forward, I would say, you know, every country is in a different mode. Uh, and so we're going to sort of continue to assess uh, a bunch of different factors over time. You know, we'll look at macro factors country by country. We'll also look very closely at um, our specific metrics. And it's, you know, metrics like engagement, like churn, and those are the signals that we have um, for indicating when we have created more value for our members. So back to your plan, and you know, it's not so much sort of a, a, an a priori plan that we have, but really more using those signs that we've done a good job of building more value for our members, which indicate to us, you know, hey, it might be time to go back to them and ask them for a little bit more so that we can then invest that further into, you know, amazing stories, great content, better product experiences, and create even more value for them. And can I just remind you, we don't narrowly manage towards an ARPU number or an ARPU growth number. Our, our orientation is we are optimizing for revenue. Great. And so, you know, when we think about uh, the way you manage this whole dynamic on yield, which is revenue maximization, obviously units are a part of it, uh, pricing is a part of it, but the other important component of this is churn. Um, and that, you know, in given the scale that you have right now, even small movements in churn can have a massive impact uh, broadly on, you know, the entire income statement. And so when you think about uh, churn, given the COVID period and the increase in engagement, is that structurally leading to uh, better churn performance in cohorts that are potentially newer versus cohorts that came in earlier? If you could just help us think through consumer behavior um, across this period as engagement has gone up, that would be great. Yeah. Spence, do you want to take that one? Sure, I can start. I mean, the, the, the short story to know is that um, these, newer, these newer members look very much like um, the members that are, are pre-existing members of the business. So... It's very broad-based, and you can see that these members are coming in from everywhere in the world, you know, a few million each in, in APAC and, and EMEA and, and UCAN, and then a couple million in LATAM. Um, they're highly engaged. Um, actually, the, the retention across every cohort is as good or better than pre-COVID. So, um, you know, and not surprisingly, the, 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 this, uh, this membership that Base uh, both new and older you know, loves film and TV content, as we said, and, and they look pretty similar. But I don't know, Greg or Ted or others, if you add to that. No, I mean, the one thing, other than this sort of big structural engagement change, which was sort of really a result of people being, you know, uh, in lockdown and quarantine, and you know, and, and turning to us for for some escape, I would say, you know, to Spence's point, backing up the the high level churn pieces, and we look at other sort of metrics that inform how they're engaging with the service, it, we see it being very, very similar to you know, member we added uh, pre-COVID. I was going to say, Kanan, it's a little oversimplified, but I think of it as when someone churns, it's always temporary. 
um, they're going to come back. It's just a matter of timing as our service gets better, as maybe their income increases, as the Internet gets faster. So we'd love people to get a taste of Netflix. We hope they stay, you know, for 50 years. Um, but if they drop out, if, you know, we think about it, it's always temporary and we're going to work hard to, to improve the service enough that they want to spend money with us. It's been interesting to see the evolution of uh, our relationship with that member, uh, where they used to think of us as the place to watch the reruns of the shows that they missed on other networks, all the way to now to where they come to us to be their favorite show. Uh, and now for Friday Night at the Movies, uh, where you have Netflix premiering the biggest movies in the world uh, on Netflix. So it's, a, it's an evolving relationship constantly, but uh, nothing unique in this, in this subset of folks. Uh, in terms of their watching and their churn, and their churn behavior, so it's exciting. That's great. And then I guess um, you know when you think about uh, uh, the product itself, one of the big discussion points has been content discovery because there's an enormous amount of content and there are an enormous number of streaming services now. Uh, and so we've got to sort through all of that um, in order to figure out what to watch. So you know when you think about content discovery, I mean. Greg, I know you run a lot of A-B tests, uh, you know, all through the year. You run hundreds of them. So what are the kind of uh, things you're thinking about in terms of improving the experience? You have the top ten list. How has that done? If you could just give us some sense of uh, how you're looking at that issue. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll talk about the top ten list and then get to the, the, the big macro question, which is one of my favorite questions, of course. Uh, so thanks for asking that one. But let's talk about an example of... Um, you know, a, a nice little uh, positive lift in overall engagement. It's not, you know, uh, game-changing, but, you know, more importantly, it actually, you know, speaks to what we think is a real, you know, member need that some of our members, not all, have where they want to know, you know, what shows are popular uh, so they can watch those easily and then, you know, participate in the, in the broader social conversation that's happening around those shows. But I think it's indicative of the kind of work that we need to go do, right? And I, I, I think that, you know, we have created literally the most incredible collection of entertainment options that has ever existed available to a consumer at a click of a button. And Ted's team is off producing more and more fantastic content at an accelerating rate. And that is, for our members, simply wonderful. It, you know, creates uh, both challenges and opportunities for us as a product team to think about the experiences that we evolve to make, you know, the process of choosing and finding a great story in that um, you know, as delightful and as easy as we possibly can. And, you know, now the way we think about it is actually that we have to make almost every aspect of that experience better. And it's not going to be one thing that's going to be sort of like suddenly, you know, uh, make a perfect choosing experience. So we have teams that think about, you know, exactly how do we pick what titles are perfect for each member? How do we, you know, do pick those recommendations and make those better every single day? How do we present those titles in a more compelling way, a way that's specific to what we think the member's interest is. We're thinking about how our user experiences work and the features in, uh, that are included in there. We want those to adapt and evolve so that they can be responsive to the specific needs of a growing number of members around the world that have growing and diverse you know, needs from our experiences. So, you know, the, the perhaps sort of unhelpful answer is it's going to be like literally hundreds of things that are going to have to change. But when you aggregate all those changes, they're, they're transformative. And I you know, would invite you to go back and sort of look at a Netflix experience from five years ago compared to today. And it's just stunning how much progress we can make through that process. 
And we are, you know, we are committed to making even more progress sort of in the next five years to come to make that wealth of content, you know, uh, a joy for our members around the world. And so, Reed, uh, I guess, you know, one of the questions that this raises is that given the amount of content, I mean, a comment that you had made, uh, I think this was in 2017, uh, was that uh, TED was not failing enough when it came to uh, the success rate of shows. And he was too much. Uh, do you think you're at a point where there is enough balance in the portfolio of content that you have, or do you feel like Netflix has to take more risk um, in terms of the portfolio? Uh, where are we in terms of that uh, mix in content? I feel excellent about the number of big bets um, that Ted has coming up. Uh, you know, I'm privy to stuff that we're doing now that will come out in two or three years and. You know, it's uh, a little like, amazing. I mean, you know, and some of it will turn out truly great, and I'll be so proud of it. So I'm excited that we're taking those risks. And, you know, we want to have so many hits that, you know, when you come to Netflix, you can just go from hit to hit to hit and, you know, never have to think about any of those other services. Right? You know, we want to be like your primary, your best friend, the one you turn to. And, of course, occasionally, you know, there's Hamilton and you're going to go to someone else's service for an extraordinary film. But, you know, for the most part, we want to be the one that can just, you know, always please you with a convenient, simple, easy choice. That's great. And, Ted, uh, from your perspective, when you think about production worldwide, obviously we are still in a shutdown mode um, and there are still issues around the world. And while things are getting, uh, getting better in Q3, it uh, seems like there would be some impact of the 21 slate given your comments about it being more back-end weighted. Um, but then on the other side, you also have content that the studios are not able to release quickly, um, right? So when you think about this, uh, does it make you think about the mix slightly differently? Maybe do we get a bit more movie-heavy initially uh, compared to originals maybe later in the year? And um, what else can we expect um, because of the kind of disruption going on right now? Well, I, I mentioned last quarter one of the benefits of releasing our series all at once is that we work very far ahead uh, of our release cycle. So that's how we're able to continue to release this ongoing steady flow. So even during the shutdown, we're partially shot on a lot of shows. So when we pick them back up, it's not like starting from scratch again. Um, so and, and, and outside of North America, uh, parts of India and Brazil, uh, we're running pretty pretty much in a normal for, in normal fashion in terms of our volume in the, around the world. And it's ramping up in different various stages of pre-production. And we've got a couple of shooting days in Cal in Los Angeles this week that we're really excited about and how that's coming back around. So I do think that um, our ability to keep up with that is a lot to do with our kind of unique offer to the consumer that turned out to be you know, a hidden benefit at a time when things would be shut down. And the other one was the kind of nimble nature of our creatives. Uh, who could on a dime pick up post-production remotely on shows that were already running. Um, and as far as film to TV, they both require you know, a lot of uh, prep work, a lot of creative at the beginning, uh, the production, and then a big, long post-production cycle, uh, sim very similar in terms of the, the, the work cycle. So I don't see us pivoting to that. I do see that there's opportunities. We did a few uh, with the studios to pick up some movies that they were having a hard time releasing. Um, and then we've also picked up a couple of nearly finished seasons of television uh, with a brand new show called Emily in Paris that we've got coming up later this year. 
uh, uh, with Lily Collins that we really love, uh, and Cobra Kai that we picked up from YouTube. Uh, not just the first two seasons, but a brand new yet to air third season that we're finishing right now. Um, and that, by the way, was a, a show that was super competitive three years ago and they brought it to market and, uh, we were, we were devastated not to get it to get to start with. So we're excited to have Cobra Kai in the Netflix family. So there's all kinds of adjustments. Our ability to license and produce, create very long lead, uh, and very fast, like you saw us do with the Tiger King, uh, finale episode uh, a couple months ago. Uh, I think it's our ability to do all those things that, um, made me really excited to jump out of bed and come to work at Netflix in the morning. That's great. And when you think about different pieces of content, um, movies versus TV shows, or even within TV shows, different genres, um, is there any difference in origination versus retention characteristics of different pieces of content? Uh, do movies originate better or retain better versus TV shows? I mean, is there anything you can tell us about that? Uh, both films and, and TV can have the same exact uh, attraction to consumers uh, in terms of what gets them excited, how they behave after, how they retain afterwards, um, how they tell friends, all those things. A, a really great experience is what they're looking for, and if you, the, the chances that they're going to have that uh, are higher on Netflix than anywhere in the world, going to the thing you said about earlier about having so many great choices to make. Uh, but I think a, a film, when it's usually successful, can be very acquisitive, can be attention, it can be retention driving, uh, and uh, also could be bring a lot of joy to our members. Uh, and series can do that as well. So it just depends on what you're in the mood for. Can I, we have time for one or two more questions? Sure. So maybe uh, Spence, a couple of questions, um, you know, uh, in terms of the guidance and the financials. I and mean, one of the things that came out was uh, the, the free cash flow margin was 15%, and uh, your EBITDA, mar- I mean, operating income margin was obviously 22%. So could you just help us bridge the gap? Uh, and how do we think about cash flows uh, going forward? Sure. Uh, thanks for noticing the uh, positive free cash flow margin. Uh, <laughs> I'd say um, two, two, two things explain that um, variance. Um, number one is obviously CapEx. Um, so that was about 200 basis points of the difference between the free cash flow margin and the operating margin. The second um, ex- expense item was interest expense, which obviously falls below operating income, but obviously reduces free cash flow. And they would just keep in mind that while we accrue our interest expense quarterly, we pay cash interest primarily semi-annually. So you actually have about two, roughly two quarters of cash interest expense in Q2. Yeah, I just, I just add, I, that's great, Spencer. And then just to add to Spencer's point, if you think about cash flow going forward, um, you know, it was, it was sort of a bit of a unique window into that, you know, forward-looking uh, cash generation uh, opportunity or, or potential for our business because of the, the pandemic. So um, we generally are forward investing into the growth of our business and into content, so our content cash spend is in excess of our of our content expense in a given year. Um, but because of the, the, the pause in productions, you can see that, um, you know, basically that cash spend and expense and content were the same this quarter, essentially at a one-to-one ratio. And um, as a result, as we said in the letter, it resulted in a 15% cash flow, free cash flow margin. Um, going forward, uh, we do expect to turn cash flow negative again in 2021 as our business and our, our production ramps up. But uh, we're still on that multi-year path to being cash flow positive. And, and when we are sustained cash flow positive, we expect to be a much bigger and more profitable business. So hopefully that 15% cash flow margin is just the start. That's great. So I guess, you know, uh, since we have uh, time for maybe one last question, um, we could just 
think about you know the world going forward positive uh, and when we are sustaining cash flow positive we expect to be a much bigger and more profitable business so hopefully that 15% cash flow margin is just the start that's great so I guess, you know, uh, since we have uh, time for maybe one last question, um, we could just think about, you know, the world going forward uh, longer term, uh, Reid. From your perspective, a lot of the franchises that are getting created in today's world seem to be coming from the video gaming side. A lot of shows that you have which have been very successful have been from that side. And obviously some of your shows have become video games um, um, in some, some instances. So when you think about uh, uh, the, and even the interactivity of some of your shows makes them feel like video games. So when you think about the way the world is evolving, it just seems like these two sides of the world are starting to converge to some extent, both in terms of the kind of content as well as the experiences. So why not think about video games as an extension of where Netflix is today? If you could just help us think through that framework and how you consider that going forward. Sure, if you think about franchise IP development and Harry Potter and then, you know, just hundreds of enormous franchises that come out of uh, full-length books. Um, then there's Marvel and our own The Old Guard, um, you know, that come out of the comic book world. Uh, and then, you know, there may be a few coming out of video games, but that's, like, pretty small. So really think of it as the big franchises uh, have come out of books and comic books. Uh, now, video games, uh, you know, great and interesting area. You know, it's got uh, a number of aspects in terms of multiplayer that are changing, esports that are changing, you know, PC-based gaming. Um, so, you know, it remains a very interesting area. But uh, Ted's got big plans to spend uh, future billions in our uh, movies and series and animation. And uh, so, you know, we got we got lots of uh, places to put the money. Um, and we're definitely uh, focused on creating franchises. And maybe, Ted, uh, in your co-CEO role, uh, maybe you can wrap us up here with final comments and uh, about that building franchises. Yeah, look, I think uh, franchise is uh, a success, the act of successfully wor- successful world building. And video games obviously have world, bu- world building aspect to them. Uh, but so do books, and so do graphic novels, and so do comic books, and so does original IP. Uh, and really, this is a matter of how well it's executed. Um, we were really unbelievably encouraged by the, the first uh, attempt at it here with um, The Old Guard, uh, which is kind of a new flavor of that kind of storytelling that I think has got a world and stories to be told for some time to come. Uh, I looked to other things that were more original IP, like uh, La Casa de Papel, uh, which in this quarter, the Casa de Papel was the most watched new season of television on Netflix, hard stop, not just non-English, English. And that, and that's in its fourth season, uh, and it's in a, become an incredible world that we're going to keep building on and keep building on. So IP uh, is, is a great place to start, uh, but it's like everything else in the world, it's usually execution dependent. And if you do it well, people want to come back for more, and you don't disappoint them you can keep doing it. So we're really thrilled about it and, and thrilled about doing it from a variety of sources. That's great. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Kamal.